In 2016, we handed over the mic to former NPR religion correspondent Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Barbara had just written a book exploring what is commonly called a midlife crisis, that point at which people may look backward more than forward and question their most pivotal choices and deeply held beliefs. Not that I would know anything about this personally, but it's a time when some people freak out. But as Barbara told us, a midlife crisis can also be a time of renewal, including of one's spirituality. Here she is on how to revive a barely flickering prayer life. Let me just ask you, what are some of the adjectives that you would use to describe how this feels? Can you just list a few? Well, I would say dry, empty, listless, nothing, (laughs) bored, arid, there's not a lot going on. You sit down in your prayer chair and you, you know, light a candle or something and you close your eyes and you're waiting for something. You're waiting for an emotion or you're waiting to be drawn to a particular passage or to be inspired or to, I love this. Then you open your eyes and nothing happens. <laughs> We all hear about the midlife crisis, that sense of boredom or flatness, or sometimes an existential despair that this is as good as it gets, and the only way to feel young again is to trade in your spouse or your car for a newer model. At least, that's how the cultural stereotype goes. But what about mid-faith crisis, that feeling that somewhere along your spiritual journey, God just disappeared, leaving you in a spiritual desert, maybe even in a dark night of the soul? And sometimes the remedy can feel similar, to want a new spiritual life, to be born again and again and again, in an attempt to recapture the spiritual honeymoon. That's what we'll talk about today with two people who have suffered through spiritual dryness, have thought about why we have it, and how to cope with it. Kathleen Norris wrote a book on the phenomenon called Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. And Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and author of many books, including My Life with the Saints. Kathleen, Jim, welcome to Interfaith Voices. Let me just start with my own experience here and tell you why I'm keenly interested in this issue and actually why I wrote a story for Christianity Today on it. For many years, I had a really great spiritual life. I felt very connected to God. I had a rich prayer life. And then it just kind of petered out. And I'd try another Bible study or I'd go to an inspirational talk. But I just felt bored with God and kind of spiritually flat. And I'm curious, has this ever happened to you? I'll step in and answer. Certainly it has. And I feel fortunate because the first time I was making my way back to church after many years away, I was in my mid-30s, and I wrote to this monk I knew as a writer. I wrote to him and told him about these sort of these wonderful religious experiences, and uh, I was so excited about it. And he said, yeah, that's all very well and good. I've had them myself. Don't expect them to last. And that was such good advice. And actually, it has helped me for years afterwards, just those words, relax, wait, good things will come don't expect it to last. Right, right. And so you have felt kind of, you've been wandering in the spiritual desert on occasion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think just about everyone, everyone has. And fortunately, the Christian tradition gives us plenty of examples of saints who have undergone uh, certainly spiritual darkness and dryness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And before we get to the saints, I want to get to another saint. Uh, Jim, how about you? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I 
not only in my own life, but I, I'm a spiritual director, which means I help people with their prayer and I listen to their prayer lives. And I've been doing that for about 20 years. I've been a Jesuit for about 30 years. And like Kathleen says, it's just part of the journey. And frankly, it doesn't even phase me anymore. <laughs> it's it's kind of like getting a cold. I mean, you get, I mean, you know, you get a cold and you say, all right, I have a cold. You know, people get colds from time to time and it'll pass, you know, seven to 10 days, as the doctors say. And so I, you know, it doesn't really phase me. Hmm. Let me ask you, how would you define this? Is it a crisis of faith or malaise? Because let me just say, as I was a religion correspondent for NPR for a decade, and I have to say, I didn't meet many people who hit a spiritual dry patch and then just kind of abandoned their faith. What I saw was something more like a quiet despair. And I'm wondering if that rings true. Is it a true crisis of faith or is it a despair? What? How do you describe it? Well, let me enter in. I think... Um, it can become a crisis of faith if you allow that to happen, if you get all worked up about it and think, what can I do? And I think for myself, one of the great gifts I had was that I had a, a, an apprenticeship as a writer. And so a lot of that rhythm of wonderful inspiration, rich experience, and then dryness, uh, you know, going from writing every morning and doing some really good work to not even being able to write a postcard. In some ways, that's a natural part of the writing process. So I was kind of primed when that began happening in my spiritual life. It was like, oh, okay, because what happens with writing is a very good editor once said to me, whenever I hear from a writer that she's probably never going to write again, she's down to the bare bones, there's nothing left, I know that good things are going to come in the next few weeks. I think a similar thing happens in our spiritual lives. Kathleen, you talked about a 4th century monk who described acedia or the sense of malaise, as a noonday demon. Can you just tell me a little bit about this monk and, and what he meant by noonday demon? Well, this was um, Evagrius and a whole number of Egyptian monks in the 4th century. They delineated what they called eight bad thoughts, and pride, anger, and acedia were the worst of them. And in their experience in the desert, acedia, this listlessness and hopelessness, would strike at noon because, of course, that's when the sun is at its peak. But they also began to really work out a psychology of how these bad thoughts work in us. And they realized that acedia also strikes at, at the noon of life. It also is kind of the midlife demon as well as the noonday demon. And I got a lot of inspiration from their insights. That's fascinating. If I can just do a little riff here, because I'm keenly interested in this whole area of, of midlife and midfaith. In psychology, there's something called the U-curve of happiness, and it's it's pretty much universal. So in your 20s, you're happy and you're full of dreams, and you know maybe you'll launch a startup or you'll win, win an Oscar or something like that. You have these dreams. And then in your, in your 30s, reality is beginning to set in. And then by around age 45, you hit the bottom of that U-curve, and you know, you're often burdened with kids and maybe aging parents and a lot of responsibilities at work. And you, you realize, you know what, I'm not going to launch that startup, and I probably won't win an Oscar either. But then something really interesting happens in people's mid-50s. Most people become happier, and they realize that life is not perfect, but it's pretty good, and they begin kind of going up the U-curve of happiness. And I'm wondering if we see something similar in the spiritual life, a sort of you know, U-curve of spiritual happiness. I, I would say yes, because you know, in, in American culture and Western culture, a lot of it is you, know, you are what you do. And, you know, towards the end of your life, you're doing less and less, and there's a temptation to think you are less and less. But, you know, in the spiritual life, it's not about doing, it's about being. And I think to free yourself up from this uh, need to be, as my novice director used to say, a human doing instead of a human being is uh, really wonderful. 
That's great. Kathleen, you re- referenced this earlier, but how common is this? Should anyone who's kind of interested in spirituality expect to go through a rough patch? I believe so. I believe so. And I think one of the things for me, there's a wonderful poem by Denise Levertov. She talks about, you know, basically, we think God has abandoned us, but really, it's the other way around. That insight has really helped me a lot, that when I think God isn't there anymore, God isn't in my life, God has not abandoned me. I have abandoned God, and I need to sort of sit still and wait for that still small voice or whatever it is that's going to come uh, to help me out of that, of my alienation. Yeah, and also, you know, looking for God in the exterior world as well. You know, the great contemporary example of darkness is uh, Mother Teresa, or St. Teresa of Calcutta now. And everyone knows that, uh, you know, she, for the last 50 years of her life, all the way till the end, experienced this profound interior darkness. And a friend of mine was uh, one of her spiritual directors. She had a few. And he was with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and she was in the midst of talking to him about how dry her spiritual life was. And this little boy came running up to her, threw his arms around her, and said, I love you, Mother Teresa. And my friend, the spiritual director, said, you know, that's God too. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a tendency, and I think, I'm interested to see if uh, Kathleen agrees with me, in the spiritual life and in the spiritual world to kind of privilege those interior movements over exterior experiences. And I, I remind people in spiritual direction that, you know, God works through relationships and individuals and music and nature and art and pop culture and our work and our families. And not to denigrate that and to say, just because something's not happening inside, I can't experience God. The great summary of Jesuit spirituality is finding God in all things, you know, and that doesn't mean just finding God in your prayer. So it's important in the spiritual life to look at your prayer, but also your daily life, your walking around life, too. Hmm. You yeah, know, Jim, you know, that, that that's really counter to all American narcissism. We want it mm-hmm. to be about us and our interior life. And I think you're absolutely right. And often for me, the, the blessings that I receive during the day, it might come because I get a nice metaphor for a poem or I am praying in, in a meaningful way. But more often, it's because I encounter a little kid on the city bus who wants to play peekaboo. Or one time this year, I had a long overnight plane ride that most people would probably think it was horrible to be seated with a young mother and a four-month-old baby. But it was an absolute blessing. This little girl named Ab- Abigail, I was able to hold her for a while while her mother went to the bathroom. And there's this little 12-pound human being on my chest and feeling my heartbeat and her heartbeat. And you just go, this is such a blessing on an airplane in the middle of the night. And you, you have to recognize that those moments are really powerful and they're God-given. For, mm-hmm. They're given to us for a reason. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. The saints of old, you know, other, other famous religious figures, did they go through a dark night of the soul? Uh, they did. Uh, you know, St. John of the Cross, uh, who wrote extensively about the dark night of the soul, uh, Paul of the Cross, uh, other saints that we know, St. Ignatius. None like Mother Teresa, though. I mean, none so extended. And, you know, you're right about it being so ironic that it's Mother Teresa because she's the person that everybody during her life would have looked at and said, oh, you know, lucky her. You know, she must have this amazing prayer life. But she had to rely on this early experience, this early very powerful mystical experience uh, to kind of carry her through. And in the end, with the help of her spiritual director, she came to see her, her darkness, her feelings of abandonment by God as a way of identifying with Jesus on the cross, you know, who cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the feelings of the poor, you know, who feel abandoned. And so it's an incredible story because she, you know, she has to rely on these earlier experiences to get her through. It's like kind of running on an empty tank or running on fumes. And 
to me, it makes what she did all the more remarkable. As to kind of spiritual dryness, is it safe to assume that every major religion has this? Uh, do they have different words for it? Oh, you know, I interviewed a couple of Buddhist monks, American Buddhist monks, because uh, when I told them I was writing about Assyria and I described it to them, one of them said, well, we just call it torpor. It's <laughs> one of the impediments to prayer. Is It's torpor. And the woman from an American monastery said that their monastery had been founded by an an Anglican woman, so they just called it acedia. But as monastics, they recognized it because here you have this very routine existence. You're trying to pray at the same time every day, eat at the same time every day. It can get very, very boring in a hurry. I kind of knew that as monastic people, they would know what this condition was. And I think pretty much all religions would have some idea that, yes, you know, you're not going to live at this intense level of prayer forever. You're going to have dry periods. Uh, torpor was the one the term I heard from the Buddhists. Hmm. But let me just ask you a question that could have preceded all these other, our, our whole conversation, which is, what's the point? I mean, why do we go through, why do people go through this spiritual dryness? What, what good is it? There's some very important things that happen when you're going through something that seems very out of control. You know, you want things to be better and they're not, and you can't do anything about it. It basically reminds us who we are, that we are not in control. It reminds us of our human frailty, and I think that's really, really important. We're not in control. And being more humble doesn't hurt us at all. How do you get through this this dry period? What do you advise people, Jim? You know, what do you advise your directees to do? And Kathleen, what have you found that works to get you through this period? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. St. Ignatius had some pretty specific advice. Um, one was, believe it or not, pray more. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, people say they're dry and, you know, not all the time, but it's because they're not putting in the work. Do some penances, you know, do something ascetic, give something up. It's, it's a way to kind of jumpstart things. But most of the time I say try to vary things. You know, if you're praying the Psalms all the time, you're praying the Psalms for the last 25 years, pray something else, you know, do some spiritual reading, read the Gospels, go out in nature. And then also, you know, be patient, be hopeful. Don't worry, it'll come back. And it's, there's nothing wrong with sitting in God's presence in silence. Something is happening. So one of those pieces of advice usually works. Kathleen, how about you? What what have you found well, works? I think all of everything Jim said rings true for me. I find that walking and swimming, there's something about the rhythm of the body in motion that really triggers thoughts. Sometimes I will discover that I need to be thinking about something I wasn't even thinking about just in walking and letting my brain go. And when, even when I'm on the gym, if I'm on a treadmill or something, I, I never listen to music or distract myself. I want my mind to be free. And then just waiting, you know. In fact, it was a bishop once who asked me, what is it that poets do? And I said, we wait. And I think the same thing is true in the spiritual life. Learn a little patience, humility, and just wait because it will change. Life changes all the time. So you can't expect that you're going to be stuck in this slew of despond, as John Bunyan would say. You're not going to be stuck there forever. And in fact, if you know Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim discovers he's had the key all along. He just hasn't used it. And that's a great metaphor for the spiritual life, I think. Thank you both very much. Kathleen Norris is author of Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. And Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and author of many books, including My Life with the Saints. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.
That was Barbara Bradley Haggerty in a story we first aired in 2016. Barbara is a former religion correspondent for NPR and author of Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. If you're interested in finding out more about our guests and their books, head over to this week's episode page on our website at www.interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcaster of your choice. And while you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Richa Karmakar, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Auto Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>